All right, well, let me invite you to find your seats as we continue our worship. And so the passage on which our teaching will be based this morning will be read for us by our very own Elise Teresina. This morning's scripture is from Mark 16, verses 1 through When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thank you, Elise. For those of you who are perceptive, yes, I'm wearing the same exact shirt as Pastor Lewis. That was totally unplanned. No, we're not some cult where every pastor has to wear a blue checkered shirt on Easter. Christianity gets a bad rap in our society. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians have definitely misrepresented the faith over the centuries in egregious ways. But I think some of the criticism levied against Christians today is also unfair. In our culture, Christians are sometimes painted as those who are intellectually lazy. It is assumed that a robust belief in the Bible is at odds with a robust belief in science. And so you cannot be smart and a Christian at the same time. However, some of the world's leading scientists are committed Christians. For example, Francis Collins, former director of the Human Genome Project, former director of the National Institute of Health, and current scientific advisor to President Biden, is a professing Christian who wrote a book called, quote, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. Of course, there are many other uh, academics who also believe in Jesus. There are some who argue that Christianity is against racial minorities and women. Critics argue that Christianity is a, a white man's religion used as an instrument of suppression to keep minorities down. At least what, that's what they say in some universities. However, that flies in the face of reality where there are more female adherents and followers of Jesus than men. Where Christianity is exploding in continents like South America, Africa, and Asia. Where pundits believe that in 10 years there will be more Christians in China than here in America. There are some in our culture who argue that Christianity 
is not good for your mental health. Critics argue that it, it produces unnecessary guilt and shame, leading to higher degrees of depression and suicide. Yet, research has shown otherwise. The Harvard School of Public Health published a longitudinal study on the impact of religion on adolescents and adults. Some of its key findings conclude that regular religious practice is immeasurably good for health, happiness, and social behavior. Harvard professor Tyler Vanderweel states that people who go to church weekly are happier, healthier, and live longer than those who don't. That those who regularly attend religious services are 12% less likely to become deeply depressed and 33% less likely to use illegal drugs. In fact, people who never go to church are five times more likely to commit suicide than those who attend church every week. In a Wall Street Journal article published in 2019, therapist Erica Commissar gave the following advice to parents. Parents, if you don't believe in God, then lie and tell your children you do because it's better for their mental health. Now, the fact that there are really smart people in this world who believe in Christianity isn't a good enough reason for you to believe in Christianity, is it? There are plenty of smart people who don't believe in Jesus. Now, the fact that Christianity is the most populous religion in the world, most cross-cultural one, also isn't a good enough reason for you to become a Christian. After all, your faith shouldn't be a popularity contest. The fact that Christianity has mental health benefits and it increases your overall well-being, that too shouldn't be a sufficient reason for you to become a Christian. After all, if you want to feel better about yourself, you can always join the local gym or buy an adorable puppy, right? This morning, I want you to consider Christianity not because it's helpful, beneficial, or useful, though it is those things. I want you to consider Christianity because it's true. Because it's true. Now, I know what you're thinking. Making such a truth claim isn't very popular these days, especially in a pluralistic culture where truth is seen as relative. But before you dismiss what I'm about to say, I hope you hear me out. What if everything you see in this world, the mountains, the seas, the solar system, the galaxies, what if everything you feel, love, beauty, is not the result of pure random chance. But what if everything you see and feel was created by God? And what if this God came into this world and took on human flesh 
in order to show man his chief creation, the way, the truth, and what it means to truly live. And what if this God-man, in order to demonstrate that he is who he says he is, performed miracles, healed the blind, the lepers, the sick, walked on water, silenced the storms with the mere word of his mouth, and rose from the dead? Would you believe him? Perhaps. You're probably thinking, Jeff, you can't prove that all this happened. And you're right. No one can definitively prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Even if I were to show you a a home video of Jesus walking out of the tomb, you'd probably say, this is doctored. You hired some special effects uh, director to produce this. Yes, believing in Jesus ultimately requires faith. But what I want to show you this morning is that belief in the resurrection is at least logically and rationally tenable. So give me a few moments of your time. I'm going to list off some names here, and I want you to figure out what they all have in common. Judas, son of Ezekiel. Simon, a slave of King Herod. John of Gischala. Menahem, son of Judas. Do you know what all these individuals have in common? At one point in the first century, they all claimed to be the Messiah of Israel. You see, in the decades leading up to Jesus and the decades following, there were dozens of messianic claims, dozens of messianic movements. But chances are you've never heard of these names. Why? Because their movements failed. That's why. Because you see, whenever Rome heard of these movements rising in popularity, what they would do is arrest the leader and execute the leader. And with the death of the leader, you had the death of the movement. And so the question before us is, then what happened with Jesus' movement? When Rome killed Jesus of Nazareth, Why did his movement not collapse? If anything, why did his movement explode and in less than 300 years overtake the entire Roman Empire? What sets his movement apart from all the other messianic pretenders? I'll tell you the difference. The resurrection happened. While every other leader remained in the grave, Jesus rose from the grave. That's the difference. And after he rose, Jesus appeared to hundreds of individuals in different times and different places over the next 40 days, eating and drinking with them, letting people touch him to prove that he is alive and seeing him alive, seeing how he conquered death, electrified his followers. And they went out telling others 
Jesus is alive, and this message would not only take over the Roman Empire, but eventually the world. And here at the center of this amazing event are three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And these women here are not just listed in this passage, but they're also found in Mark 15, verse 40, which records the death of Jesus, and also in Mark 15, verse 47, which records the burial of Jesus. And so for Mark, at these important events in Jesus' life, his death, burial, and resurrection, he lists the presence of these women. Why? The presence of these women demonstrate that Mark is not writing a fabricated story, but rather factual history. You see, back then, historians documented their accounts by listing the names of eyewitnesses. It was the historian's way of verifying and corroborating that what they're writing is actually true so that they're inviting the reader, if you don't believe me, just go ask so-and-so. They'll tell you that this is what happened. This explains why you have these women listed at these key moments, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This explains why in Mark 15, he drops the name of Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why? It's Mark's way of saying, if you don't believe Jesus died on the cross, then go talk to Simon, because he actually carried the cross for Jesus. These names are listed here as footnotes to their accounts. That's how historians wrote. So Mark sees himself as a historian, not a fable teller. And what makes the presence of these women's names all the more significant is the fact that back then, women possessed very little credibility. Their testimony was not deemed trustworthy. The Roman Empire was not a respecter of women. Their testimony was as reliable as a three-year-old's testimony, and so it wasn't accepted even in the court of law. This cultural fact makes Mark's account all the more believable for us today. Why? Because if Mark is trying to deceive us into believing lies about Jesus, if Mark is making up all this stuff about Jesus conquering the grave, then the last people he would use to be the eyewitnesses of that empty grave are women. He would write in a police officer coming to the tomb, a judge coming to the tomb, but definitely not women. But he does. And so do all the other gospel writers. Why? Because he's not trying to deceive. He's trying to report what happened. And even though the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb are women, this message that Jesus rose from the dead took off. Hundreds of people began to believe truths that they never once thought 
possible. I want you to consider the, the radical shift in belief for these first Christians. Let's consider the, the Jews who became Christians. The Jews prided themselves in being the only monotheistic religion of its day. They prided themselves in believing that there's only one God and this one God is so holy and transcendent and pure that no one could ever dare look at him and live and survive. They thought God was so transcendent that sinful man can't even uh, uh, utter his name. That's how awesome God was for the Jews. And yet, just like that, they go from this understanding of God to telling everyone, Jesus of Nazareth is God, and I ate and drank with him, and he's a really good guy. Like, how do you go from this view of God to God became man? Or even the, the Greeks and the Romans, for, for them, their view of death was actually quite positive. They said, at death, the soul is liberated from the material world. They believed the physical material world was bad and the spiritual invisible world was good. And so at death, your soul is finally set free from its prison of its body. And yet these Greeks and Romans who became Christian went from uh, 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 this view of the flesh to telling everyone, you need to worship Jesus who rose in the flesh. These people who once despised the flesh are now worshiping a man who resurrected in the flesh. So how do you explain how these Hundreds and thousands of people go from one worldview to believing truths that are radically at odds with what they previously believed and not only believe these radical truths but are telling others about them and even dying for these truths. I'll tell you, the only explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. They saw Jesus. They couldn't believe it. They spent time with the risen Lord, and that alone explains their radical conversion and the growth of Christianity. Now, there's a lot more I can say to help you see the rational support for the evidence, but I'll leave it here because there's more I want to talk to you about. In addition to the historicity of the empty tomb, I also want you to see the response to the empty tomb. When you read Mark chapter 16, you'll see that a progression takes place for these women. When the women first approached the tomb, verse 3 tells us that they wondered who will roll away the stone. Their question reveals a measure of anxiety on their part. What are we going to do? Then when they entered the tomb and saw an angel dressed in white, verse 5 tells us that they became alarmed. 
And then after the angel explains that Jesus is not here, but has risen, verse eight tells us that they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Do you see the progression? They go from being anxious to being alarmed from being alarmed to being astonished, from being astonished to being afraid. And the last thing we see of them is running away from the tomb, fearing for their lives. And that's the end of Mark's gospel. Now, ending the story with the women fleeing seems like an abrupt way to end a book. So much so that later on, some people try to add on another ending to kind of smooth out Mark's gospel so it doesn't end so abruptly, but we learn that those additional verses are not authentic. But when you read the ending and see the women fleeing, you'll see that actually it's quite consistent with what we find throughout Mark's gospel. Because you see, whenever people realize who Jesus is, they all respond the same way. When Jesus stilled the winds and the waves, we are told that the disciples were, quote, filled with great fear. When people saw a demon-possessed man completely healed and in his right mind, Mark tells us that the people became, quote, afraid. When a hemorrhaging woman discovered that she was healed by simply touching the hem of Jesus' cloak, quote, fear and trembling overtook her. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on water, they became terrified. When the disciples witnessed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they again became terrified. And so over and over again, Mark tells us that when people get a glimpse of Jesus' divinity and power, they are filled with soul-shaking fear. So seeing these women leave in fear, it's very consistent with what we've seen prior. And so what's the message Mark is trying to get across? He wants us to know that his gospel was not written for our amusement. This is not some heartwarming fairy tale where we finish reading, we close it, and we say, that was a really good story. That Jesus, he's such a good guy. No. Seeing people filled with fear and trembling, seeing how they respond to Jesus, tells us that Mark's gospel is not written to entertain us or even to inspire us. Rather, the reason why Jesus came into this world to live, suffer a gruesome death, and rise from the dead is so that he might change us and transform us from the inside out. This is why our church is called new life, not improved life or better life, but new life. The life Jesus offers us is radically different. Tom Hanks can make you laugh or cry, 
Steven Spielberg can make you feel warm fuzzies on the inside, but neither one changes your life. Jesus can and Jesus does. When you grasp who he is and what he's done for you, you move from wonder to worship, from fear to faith, from believing to beholding. This is why Mark's gospel ends the way it does. He wants us to see that when it comes to Jesus, you can't be an in, a, a casual fan. You can't be an indifferent observer. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he must be who he says he is. He is God, and if he is God, that changes everything. The implications of the resurrection are so radical, so consequential, that it demands a response for you, from you. It's like driving on a foggy night on a back road somewhere, and you've got a friend in the passenger seat, and you're just driving, you have no idea where you're going, and, and, you're, and your friend says, you know what, I think there's a cliff somewhere over here. Mm, yeah, some people told me about a cliff, I'm not sure. It's okay, just keep driving. How are you gonna respond? You're gonna park your car and say, no, you find out right now whether there's a cliff or not. Because if there is a cliff, then we're gonna die. If there isn't, then we can keep driving. The consequences of his theory are so relevant and life-impacting that you need to figure it out. You can't just push it aside and say, we'll take our chances. In the same way, the, the consequences, if Jesus truly rose from the dead, are so staggering that you need to figure out did he or did he not? Because if he did, then my life needs to be reordered around him. If he didn't, you can keep on living your life. And so, given the ramifications of the resurrection, Mark wants us to see that the empty tomb requires a response. Either he is Lord or he is a fraud. Having talked about the historicity of the empty tomb and the response of the empty tomb, I want to end my sermon by talking about the hope of the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus offers us hope. To explain how, let me tell you a story. There once was a man named Joseph. He was one of 12 brothers and his father loved him most and demonstrated his favor for his beloved son by giving him a multicolored coat. Unfortunately for Joseph, his brothers were filled with envy and actually threw him into a pit and left him for dead. They betrayed their brother, but God would not 
Through a series of fortunes and misfortunes, Joseph would eventually rise the ranks of Egypt's a political ladder until finally he becomes second in power to Pharaoh alone. He literally goes from a pit to a palace, becoming one of the most powerful people in the illustrious Egyptian empire. Now what I want to point to is his dying wish Near the end of his life, he gathers his brothers who he's reconciled with and says and makes one final request. His final request is recorded in Genesis chapter 50, 24 through 25, which reads, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Curious, though Joseph came to great fame, power, and success in Egypt, he asks his brothers, when I die, don't bury me here. Please bury me in the promised land. Though he was a prince of Egypt, his request tells us that he always felt like a stranger. He felt like this wasn't home. When I look out into this room, I see a lot of accomplished people. People who have had dreams of becoming a doctor one day, became a doctor, dreams of becoming a lawyer, even dreams of becoming a pastor, and you became a pastor. You've achieved what you've wanted to do. You're making more money than you ever have before. You're living the life you aspired to live. Let me ask you, are you happy? Is your life complete? Are you living the life you always imagined it to be? Judging by my experience pastoring here in Irvine, my guess is that the answer is no. You might get a dopamine boost from a promotion, but eventually fades away, doesn't it? A dopamine boost from buying a new car. After three years, you start wondering, maybe a new car. A boost from getting married, having kids, but eventually even that wears off. It's at this point you can tell yourself, you know what, the reason why I feel restless, the reason why I feel incomplete it's because I just haven't climbed high enough. The next promotion, the next car, the next home, or even the next spouse, that will complete me. 
But have you ever considered that the reason why you are restless and feeling empty is not because of where you are on this ladder, but have you considered it's because you're on the wrong ladder? There are few sadder realizations in life than spending your entire life climbing a ladder to only find out at the very end of your life that this ladder you're climbing is leaning against the wrong home. What a waste. You see, according to the Bible, the cause of our restlessness is a broken relationship with God. We were created to live in union and communion with our creator. We were created to have our lives centered on him. He designed us so that we might derive our ultimate meaning and purpose from him. And yet because of the fall of man, instead of finding meaning and purpose in him, we've deluded ourselves into thinking that centering and pursuing fame, glory, power, and beauty, that will fulfill us. That's simply not true. Just ask any celebrity or professional athlete. They'll tell you it does not satisfy I'm reminded of this quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes in Mere Christianity, if, it, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And so perhaps despite your success, you can relate to Joseph. I, too, don't feel completely home here in this world. Now, some of us here may be on the other side of the spectrum. Instead of achieving your goals and dreams, your dreams have been dashed. Life has been cruel and harsh. Cancer and disease has taken away loved ones. You've been the victim of fraud. You're barely able to pay the bills. Divorce and betrayal have seared your soul. No one needs to tell you that this world cannot satisfy. You've learned that the hard way. The irony is that whether your dreams were achieved or dashed, we all end up in the same place. We all end up realizing that this world just doesn't satisfy. And so like Joseph, we say, don't bury me here. This is why I love the resurrection. This is why we need the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and conquered the grave so that he might carry our bones and bring us to heaven above. 
so that we might be transferred to the place we were created to dwell for eternity, and that is in heaven above with him. And believe me, the kingdom of heaven is far different from the misery of this world. In heaven, there's no cancer, no injustice, no betrayal, no trauma, no addiction. There's only love, joy, peace, and kindness, because in heaven, we will have an unfettered, uninterrupted, unfiltered communion with the living God of heaven and earth. And this is why Jesus rose from the dead. This is why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. He rose not just for himself, but he rose for us so that we might join him one day in resurrection glory. And this gift of eternal life is given to those who simply believe and trust in him. It's given to those who admit, I can't do anything to earn heaven. It's to those who admit, I can't live this life on my own. I need a savior. I need a Lord. So this morning, I invite you to go from simple curiosity to wonder and ultimately to worship, to go from fear to faith. If you haven't grabbed a hold of Jesus, I pray that you will. For all those who turn to him, he will not turn away. He will accept, he will forgive, and he will glorify. Let's pray together. As the praise team makes their way up, I want to invite you to a time of just private prayer. Perhaps you feel the Lord, the Holy Spirit, pulling on your heart, nudging you to take that step of faith, to go from simple curiosity to belief. I pray that you would, in the quietness of your hearts, ask God to love you, to forgive you, and accept you. And perhaps some of you are here after a long time of wandering in the wilderness. Well, it's not too late to recommit yourself to following Jesus. Pray that you would use this time as well to ask Jesus to welcome home the prodigal so that you might be restored. Let's all pray right now. Father in heaven, like Joseph, we confess that 
This world is not our home. This world does not give us rest. Only you do. And we thank you, O Lord, that because of the resurrection, all those who believe in you and place their trust in you will one day be carried home. And we thank you, O Lord, that Jesus conquered death for us and gives us the gift of life. We pray, O Lord, that we would all take advantage of this precious gift, that we would grab a hold of you and become your children forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.